Hello, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, we'll be finishing up our look at The Confusion by Neil Stevenson, which is the second volume of The Baroque Cycle, containing books four and five of the entire eight um, book series. Um, so this last section, it'll be like 120 pages or so, basically pages six... 79 to the end of the book um or the end of the volume um and the main thing that's i guess plot wise going on here is getting jack shafto back to to europe and then setting up uh the climax of the story that will be appeared in the final three books contained in the final volume of the series um but there's some wonderful thematic things going on in this section of the book um you know we see jack Shafto and his cabal travel all the way across the Pacific, get to the Americas, and then finally make it back to Europe. Um, and this allows them to interact with a lot of different societies that are being increasingly interconnected into, into commercial capitalism. And I think I was, I was hinting at last time, I, you know, the, I, maybe I don't want to make too much of it or, or push it too far, but, you know, Jack's been using industrial techniques uh in india you know make the phosphorus but even more importantly to make the damascus steel which is kind of uh, going to be some of their trade goods early on in the, their voyages in the pacific eventually they buy quicksilver to to sell in mexico which will be used for mining too so you got this kind of global network of commerce that's been established already in the book more so i think you have jack kind of innovating the relationship between industrial production and commercial capitalist uh, transport. So it's like both sides of, of modern capitalism are, are there. Now in System of the World, one of the first things you read about, and that's of course set 20 years after the events of that I'm referring to here in India, you know, you meet Thomas Newcomen and his steam engine, the early steam engine, and Daniel's involved in trying to get investors for that, and, and he learns about this and all, all that kind of thing. Uh, that's kind of how we open up the industrial age, right? Thomas Newcomen's steel steam engine. But Jack got there first, right? Maybe he doesn't use the same technologies, but he has plenty of technology in his steel making process. It's, it's kind of about how we actually look at achievements, I think, uh, how the world actually changes. It's not changing all from the top, right? It's changing. You know, there are characters on the top who do important things, and, and they're part of the story we're reading but I think why Jack and, and Eliza are so important is you get innovation from the margins, right? And the people on the top who kind of piece it together and institutionalize it are, are not always the true innovators of these things, all right? So I'll just jump to kind of a spoiler, I guess, but it's, it appears in this part of the book, is the Minerva, the ship that Jack uh, Christians, after getting the sponsorship by the, this Malabar queen, they coat the bottom of the ship with the Solomonic gold, right? That the queen originally stolen, stole. So they take that and make it part of the ship. It's part of the, literally part of the ship's capital, right? It's physical capital. But they do this so the ship can be quicker. It doesn't have to be careened as often because barnacles can't attach to gold. Um, he kind of invents the ironclad here. And it's pretty amazing the more I think about it that the actual... In our universe, the actual first use of 
Iron Hulk, Iron Hulk ships was like at the end of the 19, 18th century, early 19th century, right? And then you got, of course, if you look up like ironclads, that's not till the Civil War era that you actually get steamships, right? But Jack eventually kind of invents the not just industrial production in a way. Not, I guess not really inventing. He's just using things that's already been there. But he puts them all together, right? And But he does sort of invent the, the ironclad. And, you know, obviously that's not how it happened in, in our history. But I think uh, Stevenson's making a commentary about, you know, how we judge successes, right? Um, in, in world history. Anyways. Where we pick up, we pick up in book four, Bonanza. Remember, it flips between the two constantly, and it flips probably in this section more than any others, but it's mostly Bonanza. It's mostly wrapping up the Bonanza story. The, Jun the Junkto stories uh, are just kind of filling little fillers here and there. And at the end, they flip back a lot uh, as the stories get basically come together at the end. Uh, I think it still think it would be fun to read these, read all the Bonanza sections and all the Junkto sections and see if that changes the experience at all. I, I do think this is better um, because they do run concurrently, but it's, you know, the way they come together at the end and how Jack ends up in the Junkto story at the end is, I think, a, a nice um, bit. Of course, if you're reading book four first, then five, it's not really a surprise that he ends up back in here. If the Junkto was first, you find out Jack's back, not till the end of the story. You just hear rumors about him throughout the tale. And then suddenly he's back, and then you find out could find out a story in the end. Maybe that would have been a if you were to separate them. Maybe you'd want Bonanza to be book five, but then you're requiring the readers to 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 have Jack sit out like you know a big chunk of the the series. Anyways, enough on that. We got the book we got. Um, so we pick up in Japan in May 1700. So when did they leave? Uh, when was Minerva Christian? The, 96 so this is another four-year jump in time um, by this point daniel's already in massachusetts um and and i guess so 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 in a way uh jack and daniel sort of cross paths crossing in the americas not quite at the same right latitude but they do cross each other longitudinally longitudinally at some point anyways uh japan may 1700 so um the, the cabal's kind of broken up. You have some people involved in other side missions, some like Dapa and a few others went back to Malabar to return some money they made to her because she's an investor. And, you know, different people, some people were in Manila to set things up for the trading they're going to do there. But there's a lot of them. Um, uh, the, the group's kind of split up, and I'm not going to keep track of every character for you. It's, if you want to read it, you can you can do that. But basically, you have, uh, I think it's Jack, Vraja Sfanian, the Irishman, Paul Greg Tallow, uh, Gabriel Goto, of course, is there. He's going to end up staying in Japan. Um, and Enoch Root, who's been with him for four years, right? So let's keep in mind, Jack and his sons and Enoch Root are together for a pretty long period of time. That's all off screen. Um, but they're basically buying stuff. Uh in japan to just to, to, to sell uh to bring to the new world but it's pretty clear the cabal is being broken up at this point when when uh gabriel 
Goto leaves, he actually gives Jack his two swords. He's got the long samurai sword and the short one, right? The two swords of the samurai. He gives them to Jack, and that kind of symbolizes the breakup of of the Cabal, and, and Jack says as much. Quote, what began in the roof of the Banular in Algiers has dissolved in this Japanese smuggler's cove, right? Um, so the main thing they do in Japan here is they they buy Quicksilver, right? Because what... Uh, um, but they've been involved in a lot of trade in Asia for, for four years or so, like country, country, country trade, I suppose. But it's all independent of like the VOC and these other big corporations. It's, they're basically working for this Malabar pirate queen who must have got paid back a big chunk of her initial investment. Um, here's what he writes, Neil Stevenson. Uh, it was high noon before the barge was alongside Minerva and the transfer of cargo could begin. This was an awkward way to do it, but the Japanese officials would on no account suffer Minerva to approach shore. With larger cargo, it would have been well nigh impossible, but Minerva was laden with woods, steel, and pepper, and the barge carried nothing but flasks of quicksilver and bales of straw for packing it. Any of these items could be passed or thrown from hand to hand, and once they got organized, the transfer went at a terrific pace. A hundred men, sweating and breathing hard, could transfer tons of cargo in a minute. Steel, spice, and silk streamed out of Minerva's hole and replaced by quicksilver. The outgoing and incoming flows grazed each other in, at one place on the upper deck where Monsignor Arnlock and Vegas Fanian sit on the table facing each other, each armed with a stockpile of quills, one tallying the quicksilver and the other tallying the other goods. Every so often one would call it figures to each other, just making sure that the flows were balanced so that Minerva would not rise too high or sink too low in the water. End quote. Uh, just kind of another snapshot sy- symbol of, 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 of commerce, right? More grassroots. It's very different than how Eliza sees commerce. She sees it as bills of exchange and currency flows and all that. For Jack, at this point, he's basically a merchant, seeing it as a day-to-day operation. Actual commodities actually passing each other. Um, so, um, anyways, this is all done, and then who? I think it's Van Hoo. It's either. I think it's either Van Hook or I think it's Enoch Root, actually, who figures out that the Quicksilver canisters, and there's like thousands of them, right, are only half filled. So they sway, and I guess they're heavy enough that they all sway at the same, like, you know, gravity. So the weight wouldn't be balanced on the ship if it was, you know riding at an angle at sea or whatever and it would just tip over the ship so it's a trap the japanese kind of set a trap so what they have to do is they have to stop the swooshing so while they're still at sea before they depart they have to quickly consolidate all the bottles so they don't have that swooshing um but it's a really interesting kind of way to set a trap for for the minerva Kind of some hypocrisy here among the Japanese who want to close their borders and don't want to trade, but they certainly want the stuff that Minerva brings. They just kind of want to punish them for even the impudence of, of trading with them or whatever. So anyways, that's that's basically the Minerva transactions. It involves people, some people being left behind, and um, and other other and commodities being brought back and forth. Now, before they depart, Enoch, Rudy, and Jack have a pretty frank conversation about why people want to kill them, about the nature of the gold, the Solomonic gold, and, and Enoch, Root is in the in the know, right? He is the Gandalf kind of character here. So he knew about these, how these Solomonic islands were discovered in the Pacific that had, like, Solomon's temple and this gold and all that stuff, um, and 
And then he reminds him of how important alchemy is in Europe and how much this, this gold would have been desired. Now, of course, as readers, you don't know the gold is on the Minerva itself at this point, right? Um, but he would know. And so it's, it's kind of a, in that context, this conversation is, is more relevant. But anyways, ostensibly, they're going to uh, New Spain to sell Quicksilver, which is needed in the silver mines. Then we have the, the voyage to uh, Manila. Um, and there were a few characters who were, who were sort of in Manila, meet, waiting for them there because they were doing the transactions. Now, Deal Stevenson definitely has a, a, a kind of a bee in his bonnet about Manila or some interest in Manila. He, it's such a central location in, in Cryptonomicon, right? Um, so it's, it's nice to, to come here. Right? And of course, Shafto in, I forget his first name in that, that, that book, but he, of course, spends a lot of time in Manila. Um, but we spent brief, we're briefly in Manila, and who's there? Moses was there, uh, Surrendernot, and and Jack's chilled kids, Jim and D Jimmy and Danny, are there, and they they all meet. They eventually meet in Manila, which is at this time kind of a modest, presented as a modest city. By the time of Cryptonomicon, it'll be presented as the centerpiece of the Pacific economy, which, in some ways, in some, in a very real sense, it already sort of is because. The Manila is going to be the center of the Manila galleon trade, right? Because the Spanish every other year, I think it was. I think the treasure galleons in the Atlantic went every year or a couple times a year. The Manila galleon was every other year, this voyage to, to Manila with this New World silver. Of course, it all ended up in the China market. That's where sort of everything flowed. But it was a major center of Pacific commerce at the time, really the centerpiece of it. It's a period of history not that many people maybe think about or or, or talk about as kind of a uh, you know it's but it's crucial to Pacific history I don't know I there's not that many books that I know of written about this period of Pacific history but maybe that's changing um, but anyways they they just stop in in Manila do a little bit more trading and commerce and stuff but the cool thing here is we get Van Hook's speech about the Manila galleon trade now, what their plan essentially is, is that they are going to follow the Manila Galleons when it's departing. So they're just going to kind of shadow it um, as they cross the Pacific. Um, that's 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 the plan. Um, but here, what does he say about this? Um, basically, he talks about the the great profit of the Manila, Manila Galleon trade, how it's it's rare, but it makes like huge profits every time it happens because it's it's. You know, it's like the least developed, I guess, part of global commerce at this point. Um, but also it's it's extremely dangerous and f fraught. You know, the Pacific voyage was was massive. Um, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks of, you know, and plenty of dangers and, and things, you know, yeah, much of stuff could go wrong. Uh, here's what he says. Um, yeah, he's, he goes on about the for quite some time actually about the you know the challenges of this voyage um let's see where does it start this is the manila galleon and soon it will be laden with all the silks of china and spices of india and it will sail out of the bay and commence a voyage of seven months crossing half the terrequious globe when the philippines fall away to after anchors 
will be brought up and stowed to the nethermost part of her hole, because for more than half a year they will not see a speck of dry land, and anchors will be as much used to her as the bilge pumps on an ox cart. Northward she'll sail, as far north as Japan, till she reaches a certain latitude, known only to the Spaniards, Spaniards, where trade winds blow due east, and where there are no isles or reefs to catch them unaware in mid-ocean. Then they'll run before the wind and pray for rain, lest they die of thirst and wash up on the shore of California, a ghost ship crowded with parched skeletons. Sometimes these trade winds will falter and they'll drift aimlessly for a day or two days, then a week until a typhoon comes up from the south, or arctic blasts come down from the polar regions and freeze them with a chill compared to which make us shiver and chafe, so in Japan it's balmy as a maiden's breath against your cheek. They'll run out of food as wealthy Epicureans after they've eaten their own shoes and the leathery covers of their Bibles, will kneel in their cabins and send up delirious prayers to God to send them just one of the moldy crusts that earlier in the voyage they threw away. And he goes on for a few more pages uh, describing this voyage until we finally you see seaweed and you know you're close to uh, a coast. And he does this all underneath a, a St. Elmo's fire. Anyways, that's the section. They, then they depart um, to cross the Pacific. Uh, then we slip uh, to book five, to the Junkto, briefly. And all we really have here is a letter from Leibniz to, to Daniel, who's now in Massachusetts. I think the point here is just to make it clear to us that uh, Daniel is in Massachusetts to kind of keep tabs of these characters. The introduction, though, the epigraph we get for the section is really good. It's a quote from Leibniz about determinism, I think. Quote, at bottom, all of our experiences assure us of only two things, namely that there is a connection among our appearances, which provides us the means to predict future appearances of success, and that this connection must have a constant cause. End quote. Um, and he gives uh, various updates to Daniel about the politics in Germany and the Hanoverian succession, which is already being planned and talked about, about the Royal Society, about the growing rift between him and Newton, the public rift, which will be really contentious by the time we pick up with these characters in volume three. Uh, we learn a little bit of what Eliza's doing. She's kind of running charities. Uh, I think she's doing some stuff on slave. Yeah, her, her anti-slavery work is discussed here. Um, you know, it's peace by this point, but there's now a growing conflict. A new war is going to begin, and the War of the Spanish Secession, kind of just an extension of, of the previous war, but after Carlos II finally dies, that's a running joke throughout this whole, these two volumes, is Carlos II not dying, right? But finally he dies, and this leaves the succession of Spain open to the Bourbons, and they try to claim the throne of Spain. Basically, Louis XIV tries to claim it directly. They fight this long war, another like 12, 14-year war, or something like that, with, with England and German states and others. Uh, now, this France sort of wins. It's kind of, maybe it's a bit of a draw, but... France, uh, the Bourbons get a Bourbon king on, on the throne of Spain, but not not directly Louis XIV. So it's kind of politically separate, but same family. Um, and then kind of the backdrop of the Hanoverian succession is if a Jacobite uh, who's pro-France ends up on the throne of England, this would kind of consolidate French victory in the war. So that's the geopolitical context of the final volume. And it's just beginning here. This war is just... Uh, just starting here. Um, so where is he at this point? I think he's with the czar. I think he's working for... Uh, no, he's at the Berlin Academy, but he's he's involved with... Uh, um, with uh, Peter the Great, too. A little bit. He occasionally goes to St. Petersburg, I guess, to, to advise uh, Peter the Great. 
So that's all we get for the Junkto at this point in the story. Then we go back to the Pacific, um, and we see the the voyage of the of the Minerva across the Pacific. And it's kind of like how Van Hook described it would be. There's starvation. There's lack of water. The people are getting scurvy. Uh, characters die, like Arlong, uh, the the Huguenot. We met all the way back in Volume Two. He dies. He was part of the Cabal, but he dies of scurvy. Um, but they're following the Manila Galleon, right? Throughout, throughout it. And sometimes they would lose touch with it, but they, they find it again. And then at one point, they, they, they see it, and not long after this, it explodes. Um, the ship explodes, and they pick up uh, a survivor. They actually pick up two survivors, but first they pick up one, uh, and then a few minutes later, they pick up this woman survivor. The person they pick up is Edmond Duat, who we know, if we were paying attention to uh, a previous scene, is Edouard de Gex, right? He was sent by uh, Countess de Orléans around the world, uh, posing as a Jansenist, um, and some kind of alchemical mission some kind of mission involved with the occult or alchemy or something and it brought him to the manila galleon and eventually it brought him to the minerva um, uh, as this lone survivor of this explosion which he probably had something to do with now the story he gets about how the galleon is dest destroyed is that there's a fire below decks among all the silks and things and the officers don't want to like flood the cargo hall because that's going to destroy their profits it's going to destroy everything they're doing this for so they try to manage the fire and eventually it leads to the destruction of the entire ship so greed uh over human life is the story we get for why um it was destroyed there's also like a mutiny and almost like he describes it as a three-part civil war between different factions on the galleon but you know it's it's inevitable the, the destruction of of the galleon but he survived and there was one woman, he said, was on the ship, too. And she's also survived. Her name is Elizabeth de Obregón. I think this is really good stuff, the, the de Jex, uh, role here. Because there's a whole backstory here about de Jex posing as this Jansenit. And um, this woman, you know, going to the Solomon Islands, right? They're actually going there looking for the Solomon and gold as well and digging up you know, the temples and whatever was found earlier that led to the initial cache of gold, Solomonic gold. They're, they're kind of digging around in that. And that's what led them eventually to, to Manila. That was the mission that he was sent on by, by, by uh, the Satanist in, in, in Versailles. Um, and there's definitely like a conspiracy between them. You, you overhear him talking at certain points. Um, but he's such a fascinating person, both as Dejex, but also you know, as this Jansenist, as this, uh, uh, like his religious devotion really impresses the, the crew, uh, and, and kind of, even if you imagine him not as a Jesuit, but as a Jansenist, you have these kind of a diversity of religious figures here. You got the Armenians, you got, uh, Moses, who's this crypto Jew, you have Arlong, the Huguenot, and, and all these. It's like a mixed bag of, I mean, like a vagabond group should be a motley crew of, of, of characters. I can't believe I didn't use that term yet uh, to refer to the Cabal, but they, that's really what they are, right? A motley crew brought together by circumstances and their class experience 
even though they all have their different stories, they all end up slaves. So there's a common class experience that is the heart of the cabal. Um, and then as they become merchants, as they become capitalists, they start to break up and go their separate ways, right? They were more unified in their poverty than they were in their, in their relative success. But anyways, eventually they make their way to, to Acapulco, um, to Mexico, um, surviving. They do lose people, though. Arlon dies, and the rest of them are in pretty bad shape. They lost teeth, they all have scurvy, but they do make it to, to Mexico. But now Dayeth, Dejex's role here is really important because there's not really a, a, a Catholic on board, right? Someone who could, you know, pose as or be a the Catholic agent, this person who could talk to the Spanish authorities there as a, a co-religiousness, right? No one else would really be trustworthy. So he ends up with a very important role here um, in kind of mitigating or, or negotiating the, the, the commerce of, of the, involving the Quicksilver. But they're eventually able to get off the off the ship into Acapulco. And it, it's like a party scene because all these people, including like slaves from Jamaica, all these people from the countryside and from the city of Acapulco, they all come out to basically witness the coming of the Manila Galleon, right? Because it's a big commercial event. It's a, it's a historic event, happens only every couple of years. Um, but of course it doesn't come and it's just the, the Minerva. Um, but you got this nice party and it's, it's, you see Jack's getting old and he just sort of sits and watches, but he's there, you know, listening and you have, uh, his sons, you know, partying up a little bit younger, younger men. Um, but, uh, but that, that, I guess that kind of wraps it up. Um, um, eventually Minerva, after they unload the Quicksilver, will have to sail all the way around the Cape of Good Hope. Uh, or Cape Horn, sorry, I'm going to sail around Cape Horn uh, to get to the other side of Mexico. So they're going to have to make their way across Mexico to re-meet up with the Minerva, so they're going to be there for for another, uh, I don't know, another year? Maybe? Maybe it's it's, it's another month. It's months that they're going to be in, in Mexico, and this creates all sorts of drama with, uh, with religion. But anyways, then we flip back to the Junto, um, July uh, 1701 in Berlin. And this is kind of a, it's a nice moment. It's Princess Caroline's birthday party, but it also shows the culmination of, of Leibniz's work for the, for the, for the, the Germanic, uh, you know, like for Sophie and, and those Hanoverians that he's working for and the Brandenburg, the, the, the Hohenzollerns that he's working for. It's because it's basically, Caroline is given this library and again she's kind of presented as also someone who's interested in natural philosophy kind of like a younger Eliza in a way but from of royal blood and Leibniz gives her this massive uh, library which has this like wire globe uh, a massive globe which she kind of uses as a play thing it's a, it's a fun little Caroline moment but even though she's still a kid, she's being treated increasingly like an adult. She's kind of engaged philosophically with a with a Jesuit, and it's it's clear she's going to have to either marry a Prussian and and be that royal family, or if she marries George, like you know, she might end up you know Queen of England, which of course how she does where she does end up. But that's it. I, I love this actually chapter just for its uh, you know it it kind of does give some 
because you're frustrated as a Leibniz fan reading this book because it seems he's always never quite completing his project because there's always controversy or other political things he has to be involved with or duties, you know, whatever. But the thing we've been, when we first hear about Leibniz in book one, it's about him being like in his, you know, in a library, teaching himself to read. And now we see him finally achieving something. Not quite the, you know, not quite done because of course Daniel's still working on the logic mill in, in Massachusetts and would for another 10 years, but it's a, it is a, a nice way to wrap up Leibniz's story for now, because we, we, we will come back to Leibniz in the final book, but it does satisfactorily, I think, wrap up his story as far as the confusion is concerned. So we just have that little chapter here, but then we flip back to Bonanza to uh, see uh, Jack and Deeth and and Moza and others in in Mexico City, but when we meet them, they're in prison. They're in in prison in prison by the Inquisition, right? We get a quote from Paradise Lost to open up this section. Quote: That golden scepter which thou didst eject is now an iron rod to bruise and break thy disobedience. A wonderful um, summation of what the the Inquisition was. Um, but they're being kind of individually tortured. I think Jimmy and Danny aren't captured, but it's like Jack, Moza, um, uh, Deeth, and, and uh, Obregon, the woman, are captured by the Inquisition. And they are being tortured. They actually hear Dejek's uh, Deeth, whatever name you want to use for him, uh, being tortured. Um, but after the torturing, he, he kind of tells them, you know, you've already sort of been outed as, as heretics uh, through, I think it was the torture of Obergon, the woman outed him. But he says, just stick to your principles, right? And it's because Madrid is being enlightened. And so it's a nice little, it's a little foreshadowing of, of the Enlightenment because the Enlightenment would be the final death blow for these kinds of things like the, like the Inquisition. Um, I'll get to that in a second, but you also have here Death talking about Obregon's, Elizabeth Obregon's madness. Uh, he says, in fact, I was ministering to one who was not right in mind or body. Ever since that disastrous expedition to the islands of Solomon's, she'd been a little daft, confined to a nunnery in Manila. Finally, her family in Spain arranged for her to come home, which is how she ended up on the Manila Galleon. To outward appearances, she was entirely sane, but the fire in the galleon burned away what was left of her good sense. By treating her with a tinny cure of opium, she stayed on her, by her side at all times, and I was able to keep her madness in hand as long as we remained aboard Minerva. And when I became cargador for your enterprise, my responsibilities took me down to Lima. Elizabeth came here to Mexico City, and I'm afraid she's fallen under the influence of certain fanatical Jesuits and Dominicans, churchmen of my stripe, low such as me, because I keep a civil tongue in my head when talking to Protestants. I fear they have preyed upon Elizabeth's mind and that in her madness she had said some things about me that had made their way to the stupendous and omniscient annals of the Consejo de la Suprema y General Inquisition. The Inquisition, the Inquisition wants to make me and by any extension, by extension, every other Janicet out to be a heretic. Along the way, he would like me to utter words that would send both of you to the stake. So that's why he's being tortured. Uh, that's at least what he says. You know, he's not the most trustworthy character. But he does say uh, that, you know, there's enlightenment coming because things are changing in Madrid. There's a new king, right? This is the beginning of the War of the Spanish Secession. And eventually Madrid is going to direct Mexico to not be so radical with their, um, 
uh, inquisitions, and therefore they should stick to their guns and and not not surrender who they are, not not suddenly say, "Oh, I'm a Catholic" or whatever. Basically, take the torture. Um, now it's all a lie. In fact, the Enlightenment isn't apparently coming to them to uh, to New Spain yet, but it's it's prefiguring it in a way. It's a, it's imagining a future in which in which people aren't judged for their religion, right? Uh, it's a future of religious tolerance. But nevertheless, they're tortured. So there are limits to this, right? The auto de fe, the burning of the heretics, is still planned and scheduled for in, in Mexico City. But, you know, Moses, because he has money, and he's able to prove he has money, he gets, he gets off. He's not tortured, right? So you can still sort of bribe the right people to, to get out. I guess Jack had the gold teeth by this point in the story. But uh, maybe those are already lost or, or sold off. Now, the auto de fe does happen, um, but they get off because of their connection to the Quicksilver, right? They, they're too important. And there's a lot of stuff on the margins of this whole story in Mexico involving, like, the coining of pieces of eight, you know, and the processing of silver, which is all key to the Spanish commerce, right? And, and by extension, global commerce. This is still before, I think, Isaac Newton's full. They got his handle on, on British coinage, which is going to be centered around gold. But eventually they, they're able to, to, to escape Mexico City, um, the gang. Um, and they break up a little bit more. I think Moza decides to stay in the New World and he cashes out in, in, uh, from the company. And now they got to collect all this kind of stuff that they had buried after they departed from the Minerva the first time. So they got some Quicksilver. They also got some silver, some other things they bought. Van Hook's books were were taken offshore and hidden as well. And while they're collecting this stuff, Jack gets a letter, but he's still illiterate, right? So he can't read it. And he just kind of puts it with Van Hook's books. And eventually they... they they get to Veracruz and they're all preparing to leave to, to go to London, kind of the final stage of their circumnavigation of the world um, and hopefully a profitable trading voyage for them as well. And they're planning to go to London. Um, now, as they leave, they depart. And a little bit later, they finally find this letter and Dapa reads it. And it's from, it claims to be from Eliza, right? Duchess Arcachon Tagum. After the end of the war, she's able to carry both titles um, as part of, I guess, the peace settlement. Because she, she was given the title of Duchess of Tagum by um, William of Orange. Uh, I think Queen Anne is the queen by this point, but the previous king uh, gave her that title. And of course, uh, Duchess of Arcachon, she gets through marriage. And she also has the title Countess de Lazur from the, the king of King Louis XIV. So she's able, to, she's able to carry all these different titles. Um, and here's what the letter says. Um, to Jack Shafto, the inexhaustible tides ebbs and flow neath the battlements of the castle as I pen these lines, reminding me that what is submerged and seemingly drowned forever in fateful seas may yet rise forth from Neptune's watery dungeons if one hath only patience to await the natural wheeling of heavens. I am put to mind of a certain man whom who went I last spied him seemed to be have been dragged down by the moral undertone which sweepeth away even strong souls who stand long in it and who have fallen into a condition of degradation worse than death and whose body was scarcely more fit than his spirit. He was 
far gone with the French pox and afflicted with diverse wounds and amputations to boot. Thus did this man, whom any styled a vagabond, vanish from Christian, Christendom's ken, swamped by morality's tides. And if rumors echoed up from Barbary years later to the effect of a man answering to this description had been witnessed there, it signifies nothing more than that when a span, a, a sparnid or masthead breaketh the surface of stagnant cove at low tide and reminds us that once a ship was racked in its place. But all, all of this was rumor concerning this man was but an instant overturned when tidings were delivered to France of a bataille range in the streets of Grand Carn. Where reverberations seemed to echo back and forth between the rigged pyramids and the Baroque monuments of Versailles. Blah, blah, blah. It doesn't really sound like Eliza. It's not. We've read a lot of Eliza's letters, and this doesn't sound like it. Even though she's kind of talking in this code, it's, it's pretty easy to break. It's obviously she's talking about Jack. But she gives instructions. She says, you know, meet this man. He'll pilot you through the treacherous waters to Tagum, and, and we'll meet there, right? And. You know Eliza's sort of done with Jack. She still remembers him, but she's kind of moved on with her life. It doesn't seem to be an Eliza letter, right? It's it's written, obviously, by someone else. So Van Hook doesn't want to do this. He doesn't want to go to Tagum. Uh, he, he smells something fishy. But they take a vote, and they agree to go to Tagum. And Van Hook has to go along with the vote of the, of the company. So then we get to Takum, and here's our, our kind of climax of the confusion where these stories finally come together um, and they're no longer separate. We still got different books, but they flip back a lot and the story's chronological from this point on. Um, so it's August 1702, they return to Takum, and we get another nice quote from The Plan of the English Commerce by Defoe. Quote, the seamen returned enriched with the plunder, not of ships, but of fleets loaded with silver. They went out as beggars, but came home gentlemen, nay, the wealth they brought home not only enrich themselves, but the whole nation. So anyways, they get to Tagum, and it's immediately revealed that it's a trap. Um, um, and, well, who set this up? Who set up this trap? Well, um, Obregon, uh, De Jex, uh, and Vrejasfanian. So here's the big revelation of the story, uh, is that Vrejasfanian was kind of planning things all along, right? I guess, was that letter originally written by, maybe it was written by Vrejasfanian or it was written by Dejex, I'm not sure. But um, they're captured um, or they're they're surrounded by French ships. Van Hook, for some, whatever reason, cuts off his hand. He's already cut off like a finger and he mutilated himself a couple of times. He did it again here, uh, being defeated and, and, and tricked. Of course, he seemed, he smelled something was up at this point. But... Jack says, like, everyone's ready to fight for him, which is a great moment. Uh, even his sons at this point have earned enough respect uh, for him to, to fight for him. But Jack just says surrender. He says, this isn't going to be another Cairo. We're not going to get away this time. And he's captured. And he's he's taken into the castle of Tagum, which is a really cool, like, old Celtic kind of Dark Age castle. It's not a modern castle because Tagum's really a backwater. It's not even real, right? It's just, uh, it's like islands off of Scotland or something, but a slightly different culture um, with their own language. They still use the runic language. Their castles are still dark ages. So it's really kind of a, a, a kind of medieval throwback in many ways. And then uh, a lot of it is revealed here. It's revealed that Vrej and Dejex and Obregon were behind it. It's revealed that the destruction of the Manila Galleon had to do with the, 
the Inquisition tyrannizing, tyr, terrorizing the people of the of the ship. Quote, there is no mutiny, no violence. One day the captain was simply gone as if fallen overboard when no one was looking, and the officers are in irons, confined to their cabins, but none of them knows it yet because they're all in a drug sleep. A man in a black robe has seized control of the ship. Like any other inquisitor, he has a staff of familiars who until now have been disguised as merchant servants. They've been gathering information about their employers, blasphemies, and heresies. And two, he has bailiffs uh, who have been disguised as ordinary seamen, but who are now armed with pistols, whips, and blunderbusses. And they're not slow to use them against anyone who challenges the authority of the man in the black robe. So this is all from a letter from Obregon that, that's only, re- I think it was, you saw it later, earlier, but Jack couldn't read it. And so it's only revealed now. Um, and kind of Obregon's madness, as described by De Chex, is put into context here that she was actually terrorized by this Inquisition. Uh, quote, uh, with opium and with clever arguments, he induced her to believe that the burning of the galleon had been an accident and that now in Minerva they were prisoners of the heretics and would kill the black robe be- would, and would kill the black robe if they knew him to be a Jesuit. After that, they would make her their whore. So she played the role that the black robe devised for her, but was recuperating in Mexico City and suffering diverse tortures from want of opium, etc. So this is all just Jack space who destroyed the Manila galleon itself. Um, so wonderful uh, revelations uh, in this part of the story. Now, when Dejex questions Jack, he, he's only interested in the gold. Like, what happened to the fucking gold that you originally took from Cairo? And he sticks to his story that it was taken by by the by the pirate queen of Malabar, right? So he doesn't reveal this last piece of information, and it's not till the Minerva is left to go without Jack. Um, they're let to go because it's partially owned by Sophie. Sophie was a part owner of it through the Dutch or something going on there with the building of it. So she was a part investor in it. And so they don't want to offend them now that they're at peace. So the Minerva is allowed to go. And as it sails away, it's revealed. You can see they're able, people on the coast are able to see that the hull of the ship is plated with metal, right? This metal, which it might be copper, might, but it's it's actually the gold, right? It's the Salmonic gold. To so you wouldn't have to be careened, uh, and it could travel faster, and also to transport the gold, right? So no one would know, because it's all below the waterline. So then we get a pretty horrific uh, moment where where Etienne Dakashan appears, and he's like his dad was a villain, right? Etienne Darkashan, I mean, he was a, a weirdo and an aristocrat, and he wasn't that nice to Eliza as a husband. But he wasn't, even Eliza didn't really blame him for what his father did, right? He's not really a, a, a straight-up villain, but now it's shown that he is connected in all this, too. So he was involved in getting the Esfanians to believe Jack had, a, you know, ruined their family, right? He terrorized their family using the, like the French legal system to, you know, to get to Jack's. So he's still simmering over that party that Jack broke, uh, or crashed um, earlier, you know, back in King of the Vagabonds. But they're all in cahoots, like Dejex and Etienne Dakashan and Vrejas Fanian are all somehow connected in, in, together. And Etienne sets up this thing where Jack's kind of prison cell in the castle Tagoon. It's behind this kind of glass, this one-way glass, so he can see into Eliza's bedchamber. And she's now, she's arrived to Tagoon on the meteor, which is the 
Dakashan's ship. She gets off, uh, or and she she's in this her bedchamber, and Etienne like beats her up and rapes her. It's uh, some pretty nasty stuff. And Jack is meant to see all this, so his he finally, after twenty years, you know, sees Eliza again. It's, yeah, it's about twenty years, maybe seventeen years or something. Yeah, sees Eliza again, this woman he loves, and he sees her being brutalized by by Etienne Dakashan. And you see Eliza just sort of broken down by what we now is revealed to be probably years and years of, of sexual abuse by, by her husband. Quote, uh, I guess trigger warning here, if, if you want. Uh, her husband came up and struck her across the face with his hand, twisting her around so that she fell face down on the bed. Then he whipped her across the arse and the backs of her thighs with the crop, occasionally looking up to smirk at Jack through the mirror. He commanded her to rise on all fours and she obeyed fucking interspersed with more whipping insured etienne did it from a position bolt upright on his knees on the bed behind eliza so that he could stare jack down until the last moments when his eyes closed now in the dungeons of the inquisition jack had himself noted a phenomenon oft discoursed of by prisoners namely that after a bit of torture the body went numb and it simply did not hurt that much anymore perhaps the same thing was at work here it had hurt just to see eliza to be so close to her, seeing her little lava dock boy had perhaps been the worst. The scene of riding bareback, however, was grisly in it. Okay, sorry. Um, was grisly, it was in a certain way. Simply did not trouble him as much as Etienne clearly supposed it did. If Eliza had jumped up from her writing desk to smother her husband with kisses and then dragged into the bed and made rapturous love to him, that would have hurt. But instead she had shrugged. Parked her quill before the ink was dry on the sentence she had been writing when Etienne had entered the room. He had exhausted himself. She had her clothes back on and was approaching the desk with a look on her face that said, Now where was I when what's-his-name interrupted me? End quote. So it's something you didn't know about Eliza, right? That she was basically a victim of domestic abuse for, you know, for all this time that she's been married to him since, I guess, 1690? So for 12 years, uh, and it's totally not on her face, right? You don't see it when you saw Eliza. It's just part of her story that's that's only revealed now. And I, and I think it's uh, having it revealed to Jack at the same time as revealed to us makes it that much, I think, heartbreaking. And Jack is stuck in this room for like a month um, before he's finally freed by none other than Louis XIV. Louis XIV commands his... Um, freedom and he's brought to paris and so we pick up in october 1702 we're back to book five the junkto so we sort of flip back to the junkto and we're in the hotel uh, dakashan the the estate in, in paris and louis the 14th grants uh him this actual formal meeting with eliza and vrejasfani is also there and the king uh, actually says make up it's not jack's fault he says monsieur Esfanian, we have heard that you were misinformed and that in consequence you swore a vendetta against monsieur shafto as we have just been explaining we do not as rule involve ourselves in such broils but in this case we make an exception for monsieur shafto is about to do us a favor it may take him many years we should be most displeased if your vendetta should interfere with his work we have heard that the misunderstandings on which this vendetta were founded have been cleared up and from this we presume all is forgiven between the two of you. But we would see Monsignor Shafto and Esfanian shake hands and swear in our presence that all is forgiven. You may feel free to speak to each other. And we get a wonderful moment where Esfanian talks about the sufferings that his family went through 
explains this all to Jack. It's a it's a kind of truth and reconciliation moment. Um, Jack, uh, he asks for Jack's forgiveness and Jack gives it. Then they swear to the 10, the original 10 that were on the galley together, right? To Moses, Dapa, Van Hook, Gabriel, Nazia, Yevgeny, Jeromino, and Mr. Foot. And he pulls out a rifle, a pistol, I guess not a rifle, pistol, and shoots uh, Etienne Darkashan. So he's able to get his revenge for his family in the end. Um, um, but it costs, it's going to cost Vrej just finding his, his life. And he kills himself. Um, knowing he can't, he's not going to be able to escape. Now, what does Louis XIV want with Jack? Well, he basically gives Jack a mission. And he says, like, you're going to destroy British currency. And there's another war coming. The war of the Spanish succession is beginning. It's going to be against England again. And you are going to undermine British currency however you want. You're going to basically raid the mint in some way. Um, and there's a lot of different tactics that Jack will end up having to use, such as messing with the, the, the picks text and uh, coining the Solomonic gold to mess with the currency and things like that. He's going to be a coiner, a, a counterfeiter, but he's going to have other other missions. And this is what this all involves is the whole point of volume three of this series. Now, what does the king have to offer Jack at this point besides his life? Well, he says, you know, now Eliza is kind of under my power and I'll give her freedom. I'll give her security. I'll give her kids all they need, wealth and privilege if you do this for me. So then we flip back to uh, Bonanza. Um, it's, it's nice, though, that the, jun the Junto part is the part set in um, Paris because all of the other Paris scenes are in the Junto. Um, and then we flip back for the final few pages to Bonanza, um, book four, and we see, uh, we see that there's kind of a... That was the carrot, I guess, he gives them, but there's also a, a, a hint of that stick, quote, Quote, the king was too polite to mention the opposite face of the bargain, which was if Jack failed, the consequences would fall on Eliza. But Jack had plenty of time to work out that during the voyage down the scene and across the channel. End quote. Um, but the final scene is Jack finally returning to London after pretty much his whole life, right? Because he, he was a kid, he was in London, but he hadn't really been there since his kid. He spent most of his life on the continent and then did this globe trotting, as we described in this book. Um, but he does commit himself to fulfilling Leroy's, uh, Leroy, Leroy's uh, commands and uh, try to take down the mint. And he actually gets a glimpse of Sir Isaac, Sir Isaac Newton, who will be his uh, antagonist for the rest of the story. So that's it. Um, uh, that's the confusion. That's volume two of the Broke Cycle. Um, so wonderful ending, I think. Uh, not just like the Manila Galleon stuff, the, the Mexico stuff is great, and it's all packed into 100 pages. It's a pretty dense part of the book, but so much happens. And then all the revelations at the end, the final reconciliation of Vrej and, and Jack, thinking Vrej has held this grudge against Jack Shafto for like 20 years, and Etienne's had this grudge against Jack for 20 years. And you have Dejex and the gold, the, the, the searching for the Solomonic gold, and him coming out as really a villain as an inquisitor in hiding who totally devastates this galleon full of just innocent sailors. Um, the revelation that the gold has not been on the ship the whole time. So much great stuff in this final part of the book. Um, it's uh, 
it's it's a reason I think most people like this part of the story the most. It's got the action. It's got the high drama. It's got uh, uh, a lot of tension. It's the most cinematic part of the story. If they were to someday ever film this, this would, you know, be the best seasons, right? It would be whatever they made out of this book. But anyways, this all leads us to the final um, part of the story, which is all set in 1714 after Daniel returns to London. So we got a bit of a Rip Van Winkle story where he's going to see London after 20 years. Is it 20? After 15 years and how much it's changed rapidly, in part because of Newton and the gold change, but also in England, Britain becoming a world power, a uh, center of commerce, which it hadn't really been before, less of a backwater. Um, so he sees all those changes, the architectural changes, the change in styles that aren't experienced in, in Boston. So you got all that. You have the final culmination of Jack's work as, uh, the undercover Jack, the coiner, um, someone trying to debase British currency and, uh, you know, his confrontation with, with, uh, Jack, you know, Luke, not, like Newton's confrontation with Jack. And then you also have the Newton's confrontation with Leibniz also, which is where we thought we were when the story began, right? When you first read it, you think he's just going to go there to mediate the calculus dispute. But no, there's going to end up being a lot more going on here involving currency, involving commerce, involving war and, and grand politics and all the things that's been added to the story over time. So in a way, the early chapters are a bit of a trick. Uh, deceiving us about what the story, the depth of the story was really going to be and how much of this Daniel would be personally involved in at the end. So anyways, that's what we, uh, so we'll have uh, nine episodes covering the system of the world. There's three books. Uh, I'll break them up a hundred pages at a time pretty cleanly uh, this time. Uh, so we're coming to the end of this read through of the Baroque cycle. Uh, I hope you agree with me. It's just a wonderful series with so many ideas packed per page. I don't know of another series that has this many ideas kind of packed uh, per page in a way. Great uh, science fiction ideas, fantasy ideas, historical, uh, philosophical ideas. It's, it's all in here. This book kind of has it all. Anyways, I've been enjoying it. I hope you have been as well. Um, so I will uh, close up now. If you have any thoughts at all about the confusion, um, let me know what they are. I know a lot went on in this book. It's the busiest, I suppose, of all the texts. Um, I think Odalisque is also very busy, but it's in a different way. Um, this one is is the busiest in terms of action and drama and revelations and things like that. So, uh, yeah, that'll be it. Send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. But if not, just uh, wait a few days and I'll upload uh, my first thoughts on Solomon's Gold. Book six of the Baroque Cycle. Thanks for listening.